in this episode of the Critical Oxygen Podcast. You're trying to define a, a physiological benchmark or some some reference point uh, which allows you to distinguish zone one, two, and three. And I actually, um, I, I, I would say maybe it's not that important which boundary you, you use. It's more the amount of data you're uh, you're gathering. Hey everyone, Phil Batterson here. I just wanted to interrupt the program really quick to apologize for uh, the poor audio quality from my end. Um, for some reason, the recording technology that I use uh, just wasn't recording the best audio uh, today. Um, I had a really great conversation with Dr. Spurlick, and I hope that doesn't detract from all of the great content that is within this episode. Him and I talk about things like training intensity distributions, uh, why you would want to use polarized training versus pyramidal training, you know, throughout different portions of the season, what wearables to use, other things like that. And he's one of the leading researchers on this sort of stuff. So, um, like I said, I just wanted to issue an apology in advance for everybody. I really think the content is really good. His audio sounds really, really good. Um, so unfortunately my audio does not. So, um, I, I apologize for that but I hope you guys enjoy. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Critical Oxygen Podcast where we help you optimize your physiology and maximize your athletic potential. I'm your host, Phil Batterson, and today we're joined by Dr. Billy Spurlick, who is a researcher and professor in training science and exercise physiology with more than 20 years of experience in teaching and research. He's interested in taking an integrative perspective on mechanisms explaining the modulation of performance and health in different populations. And in doing so, he is a firm believer in the use of wearable technology for understanding the various modulators of adaptation and free living conditions. Today, we're going to talk about training intensity distributions and the use of wearables in endurance sports. Dr. Billy Spurlick, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me here. Yeah, I'm excited because I, I published or had, I didn't publish, I looked at one of your papers and reviewed one of your papers. And then somehow somebody tagged you in it. And, you know, <laughs> then we got to talking on Instagram and, you know, we, we set this up a while ago, but now we're finally able to talk about, you know, kind of these training intensity distributions and other things like that. So I'm really excited. Yeah. Thank you to the guy who uh, got us hooked up. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And and for those of you out there, if you do know, like the first author of papers that I review or do anything like that, tag them or say, Hey, it'd be awesome to get, you know, this, this person on the podcast and then I'll reach out to them. And if they have time, you know, we'll, we'll make it work to the best of our ability. So, um, with that, uh, Dr. Spurlick, if you wouldn't mind just giving people a little bit of a, a, a an introduction to your background, like what got you interested in, you know, exercise physiology, those sort of things, because that's it's always interesting to hear somebody's origin story, you know, as it comes to yeah, academia absolutely. in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, I uh, I used to be a track and field guy. I was um, I was running, throwing, jumping, and after a while, uh, I had some some injuries, and um, I don't know really why, but my emphasis really was the last discipline, you know, in decathlon, which is the fifteen hundred meters. Mm -hmm. So one day my coach said, hey, listen, I think those uh, nine other disciplines, maybe you're not the best in those. Uh, let's try the let's try the last one. And right. I was a middle distance runner for some time. And uh, I also had some knee issues, some Achilles uh, issues. And then 
it, it's quite, if you're in endurance, uh, jumping to triathlon isn't too far. Mm-hmm. And in the 90s, actually, triathlon was uh, kind of like a, a baby discipline. Uh, they were, the, the Hawaii Ironman was popping up and all these sensational performances, you know, in the heat and all these guys battling and running and uh, Mark Allen um, running. And, and I, I kind of uh, I was fascinated by by the sport. Um, the thing was for me a little bit, I, uh, I started swimming a little bit too late, maybe at the age of mm-hmm. 16, 17, which isn't probably the very best time to start swimming. Uh, drafting at that time was uh, not an uh, it was an issue, but it was not a rule, uh, neither for the Olympic distance nor for uh, the, the long distance Ironman. So, yeah, I uh, I really enjoyed triathlon. Uh, the thing with triathlon then was at the time, actually, there weren't any, at least not in Germany, uh, I wasn't aware of any really highly educated uh, triathlon coaches, really from the background triathlon. Usually they came from running, swimming, or mm-hmm. uh, cycling. So you had all these very specialized, nerdy coaches. And um, uh, with triathlon, you, you, you have three disciplines. And if you maybe take strength training into that equation, uh, maybe you have four disciplines and uh, getting four disciplines uh, time aligned or uh, at least streamlined in a certain way. Um, that actually was my, my, my passion in, in, in physiology or exercise f- physiology. How can I combine, how can I strategically uh, combine swimming uh, cycling and running and plus strength training um, and getting everything a little bit aligned. So yeah, that was the, the, the starting. And then of course, by doing so you think of, ah, there's some rumors, this guy's eating this type of carbs and that amount of um, carbs or other supplements. And then you start wondering, ah, what's the background? What's the, the theory behind it? When you're 20, 21, you actually, you don't care. You just do whatever the, the champion does, you know, more mm-hmm. or less. And I'd say that's definitely, um, uh, I would say, a rule I wouldn't follow anymore <laughs> or uh, I wouldn't do <laughs> if, I, if I'd if come back one day. And uh, <clears throat> Yeah, but then, yeah, um, nutrition, uh, heat. I uh, had a, um, or I tried to qualify for uh, Hawaii Ironman in, in Nice in, in France in the south, and it was a really, really, really hot day. And I got hit by the heat, and then thermoregulation all of a sudden was a topic for me. And then um, I was a little bit involved in the preparation of the track of the German track and field team for uh, Beijing and London Olympics. Then high altitude was a topic and um, all these, I'd say, very special fields, which are important for endurance athletes, always crossed my um, my professional doing. And um, I've been interested in all of these areas so far. And of course, when you invest a lot of time um, in, in triathlon, let's say at least 20, maybe 25 hours per week. Uh, which is quite typical, 
Then after a while, uh, thinking of intensity uh, is, I'd say, one uh, key component. And, um, and, and maybe a, a little bit of a background from the German training science tradition. When I grew up, um, high volume, or let's say the more higher the volume, the better was the strategy to go for. Mm -hmm. uh, there are actually some influential uh, German textbooks, uh, which um, the translation is more or less, um, if you engage in high intensity uh, exercise with a high uh, lactate concentration, uh, your mitochondria will, or the mitochondria content will decrease, or your mitochondria will uh, will get destroyed. And that was a little bit the thing. I grew up high volume, high volume, low intensity exercise, low intensity mm -hmm. exercise. And during my studies in uh, at the sport university in Cologne, I was a, a, a children's coach for uh, swimming and track and field. And um, I realized quite early that high intensity intervals are the way to go, uh, in, mm -hmm. uh, at least in children, because children, if you, if you look at our group, half of the group are, you know, the low, lazy um, uh, type of athletes with basically no, uh, no ground contact time at all. So they're really gluing on the, uh, on the, on the track. And those are probably the ones, uh, more engaging in low intensity exercise. And then you have to really, you know, the, the fast guys, the sprinters, the jumpers. And, uh, those actually, I, I, I think, uh, profit more from high intensity interval training. And then, so I, I saw the textbooks were not <laughs> aligned to what I was uh, doing and living as a coach. Mm -hmm. But I still, this textbook sentence was still the thing, uh, hey, you cannot engage, you're destroying mitochondria, you cannot engage in high-intensity interval training. Uh, this is a psychological distress, uh, high-intensity intervals. And I, I say, no, it isn't. Uh, the minute you you have a, a good performance in your your swim competition, that's psychologically, I think, the thing to do. You know, as a as a child, you invest time and you want uh, you want your your revenue basically. So I was a little bit in a conflict. Uh, that was beginning two thousand, I would say. Uh, okay. And then uh, a Canadian group came up, Kibala um, in uh, mm -hmm. I think, or actually a, a Norwegian group. Um, in 2005 or six, on uh, interval training, then Gibala and cycling, uh, and I went back to my supervisor at that time, and I, I told him, "Hey, listen, the evidence is out. Uh, we need to investigate um, high intensity interval training." And for me, as a as a coach at that time in, in, in children. Um, swimming and track and field, I, I said, I need to do, I desperately need to do studies in that area. And mm -hmm. That's how I got engaged in this, <clears throat> what might be the best solution uh, in terms of endurance training. Uh, of course, the studies at that time were limited, usually around maybe six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks of intervention. Uh, you yeah. know, you, you, you modulate just uh, a, a certain time, of a child's or 
yeah, life basically. And uh, but but still, uh, we 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 could prove or show that high intensity interval training is quite uh, at least in that ten week time frame is no big deal. Uh, they fatigue, but they recover. Uh, mm-hmm. Improvements are the usual five to eight percent, depending on how many how many sessions you do. So uh, and, and and then of course. Uh, in Germany at that time, uh, we all of a sudden we were allowed to do high intensity intervals. Uh, <laughs> so that was a little bit different to maybe the North American, uh, Canadian, uh, Scandinavian, maybe even or British uh, uh, approaches. <clears throat> so um, what I think then happened was a, a little bit uh, a harsh discussion. On uh, it's it was all about high intensity intervals. Uh, right, the the pendulum t- swung to the other side, completely in the other other direction. Um, and now that the last ten years, I would say, we're calibrating a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we're identifying or trying to identify best practice um, patterns in various different um, uh, in different sports. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that actually uh, was a little bit my my background. And these discussions with coaches, which uh, or how much of high intensity intervals would you add to your to your normal training or to your low intensity interval training? Yeah, has been on my my agenda now the last uh, the last 10 years. And then um, a nice colleague from from Austria, Tom Stegel, he contacted me and he said, "Hey, um, let's do an experimental study." Or actually, he was already on the way doing the study, an experimental study on uh, on a little bit looking what are the differences between low intensity um, uh, continuous exercise, <clears throat> threshold training, polarized training, and what we then called pyramidal at that time mm-hmm. uh, patterns and actually the outcome from that study was that polarized uh, Trump basically all the other uh, mm-hmm. uh, patterns but always and I think that's important for the listeners here just within a time frame of I think uh, as I remember nine weeks <clears throat> so we had okay. three, three times uh, three weeks and we we looked at those. So nine weeks uh, of exercise, we, we could show that the polarized was the best pattern. So that was a, a more, uh, let's say, adding onto the terminology uh, Stephen Seiler started. Um, I would say I think his first publication was in was in two thousand six or eight. I don't remember completely okay. anymore. Okay. Yeah. He's been uh, around. Long, He's long. been around training the distribution, you know, uh, game for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Um, first, just to, just to clarify some things. So, you know, when you're looking in the le- literature, right, we're talking about training intensity distribution, and you kind of went over this, but could you, you know, maybe give like a like a high level definition for people, and then <laughs> going back to the paper that you and uh, is it Tom and how do you say his last name? 
Stögel. <laughs> Stögel. Oh boy. Yeah, Sch- I won't Stögel. even. I won't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll let you. I'll let you pronounce it. But that that paper where you guys were comparing, you know, like the low intensity training to the, uh, you know, the the polarized versus pyramidal, and you yeah. you, you compare it all of those. Could you just give a quick definition of of all of those just for the listeners? Yeah, maybe I uh, before I do that, I think we, we would need to maybe define a little bit intensity. So the, okay. the thing was, um, or the, the thing still is, uh, if you look at different sports, <clears throat> let's say cycling or uh, running or rowing or swimming, <clears throat> all the federations, um, let's say also here in Germany or probably elsewhere uh, the same, they use different spectrum uh, or uh, of intensities. So I, I would say um, I would say the five zone model and maybe the seven zone model are probably uh, in the practical area are the most widely used. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's say zoning or clustering of intensities. <clears throat> the thing is now, how do you define a five zone, a seven zone, or we in uh, in research we use the three zone because. <clears throat> It's easier to compare studies. Mm-hmm. So many of them use uh, peak heart rate or uh, VO2 max as the 100%, and they then they do percentage uh, clustering. So zone one could be a very low VO2 max compared to the 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be heart rate based. Uh, we're we here in Germany. I still think are very, uh, I, I maybe even say fanatic. <laughs> um, uh, we like to define intensities based on blood lactate, uh, which I mm-hmm. have a lot of experience as well. Um, I still like to do that <clears throat> because there is some information, but most probably there's a lot of information. The, absolutely, <laughs> but most probably. We could find the ups and downs, and uh, there's been studies out, and actually the paper we're discussing today, we, we also, one of the reviewers, he was really, uh, really good. Um, he uh, challenged us a little bit on what's the reliability on this zoning, and actually it's quite poor. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, keep in mind uh, defining the zones is a little bit, uh, let's say a blurry, blurry thing to do. Yeah. So it's, it's not, it's not perfect, but still, uh, for intensity, actually we have some models. We have, um, zone one, two, three, four, five, or zone one, two, three in a three zone model. I think that's okay. What we do not have, not at all, at least not to my knowledge, we don't have models for the volume, (laughs) So you right. could define you could define a zone one no matter in, in which type, and I wouldn't say you could do that forever, but for a very very long time. But the question is, can we identify a model or any any framework on telling us, okay, zone one for you is two hours, four hours, six hours? How long is it? We don't know. So okay, that's that's maybe a little bit uh, a different story, <clears throat> and the training intensity distribution actually in the end is summing up basically the time you spent 
or the kilometers or, uh, yeah, usually it's the kilometers, but I would say mainly it's the time spent in zone one, two, three, four, and five. Mm-hmm. And th- the main idea is <clears throat> if you, if you know the quantification, how much percentage in which zone, then one goal is to identify something like what we would call dose response relationship. We, we as a coach or as a researcher, we'd like to know, okay, more zone four and five, VO2 max going up to 3% or 8%. So we try to, to find a little bit of dose response relationship. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the first thing uh, coming maybe to the paper is, uh, well, it wasn't a meta-analysis, but I would say a, a quite extensive, maybe systematic, more systematic review uh, the first issue I'd like to highlight is that the sports we were looking at, the, well, we call them endurance sports, but running definitely is different to rowing, is different to cycling, is different to swimming, is different to ice speed skating, to biathlon. They all differ extensively. Mm-hmm. And, and especially, I would say, running compared to all the others. Running itself has a, a quite high eccentric component, um, and you have a lot of steps involving eccentric forces, which you basically do not have in cycling more or less at all, uh, mm-hmm. I, I would say, or in swimming, meaning that the volumes in those sports like cycling, cross-country skiing, swimming, uh, will be, I, I would say, at least double the amount compared to running just because uh, you need a lot of recovery time from those eccentric, uh, from the eccentric exercises. So Mm -hmm. my issue I had when I started um, uh, that review uh, almost two two years ago was how how can we, or is, is there a fair comparison, especially running to all the other sports? And then, Another issue is rowing and cross-country skiing involve basically all your muscles. Cycling, Mm -hmm. maybe not as much. So then the question is, how do you define a a training intensity distribution on a whole body exercise versus a lower body exercise? Uh, The next issue was um, sports like, uh, let's say, ice speed skating, for example. Um, um, The athletes there, they uh, uh, not only or mainly engage, I would say, in uh, maybe inline skating or similar to inline skating, which we would call maybe a semi specific exercise but then you also have non-specific like cycling uh, so they do a lot of cycling in ice speed skating and then the question pops up how do you combine these different types of exercises and that's um if i'm honest it's uh, it's a nightmare uh, <laughs> it's not possible. Um, then the next thing and i think that's a really really big issue and nobody so far has been tackling that issue at all well uh, sport- I- at least from from my perspective, I've seen training peaks try to 
do something along those lines where yeah. they have, you know, training impulse or, yeah. you know, something where it's like they're taking into account your zones as it's, as it relates to both your mechanical, I mean, you know, sort yeah. of output, which is, would be your speed and your power or your internal, uh, yeah. you know, output, which is your heart rate or lactate values or, you know, SMO2 or, you know, whatever you want to actually do. But again, it's still, it's, it's, I would say you nail, you hit it right on the head, right. With running is that running, you stand, you make so much more damage for a certain volume of running compared to cycling that how do you actually compare that? Right. Because your heart rate may not be super high, but the eccentric loading that you have might require two times the amount of recovery. That's just a, a hypothetical number, but it's a lot more than cycling. And that's what I've been finding with my cycling training is I can go and do something, talk about polarized training in just a little bit, but I can do something that's a little higher than zone two, hold it for an hour, hour and a half, come back the next day and do a VO2 max workout and still hit super high numbers. Whereas running, yeah. if I if I did no, something no that way. was in like that that zone three, no way I'd be able to come back and do a VO2 max workout the next day. I'd be, I'd potentially get injured, you know, I'd, I'd feel terrible, other things like that. So yeah, it, it, that's a, it's a really interesting conundrum that you're bringing up and not something that I think a lot of people yeah, appreciate. And plus, I, I think um, there's one, I think a very, very important information lacking is that sports like um, swimming, uh, cycling, of course, but I know from cross-country skiing, those athletes have a lot, a lot of time in the gym. And, mm. um, and it, uh, it depends a little bit on how you do your, your strength workout, but that leads to a, a quite severe metabolic disturbance as well, uh, depending on what you do. And so far, strength training uh, for some sports like canoeing and kayaking, I, I just would have hypothesized, but at least from the German data I know, uh, it's almost 50-50. Uh, they have a lot, a lot of strength training. So mm-hmm. how how can we how how can we let's say analyze that? Because uh, it is a certain type of maybe zone five exercise after a while, depending on how long you do it. But it's it's not integrated in any dose response models so far. Uh, so that's something I'm, I really have uh, a bad stomach feeling, um, to be mm-hmm. honest, when we probably uh, discuss the data, what, what, what we published, because I think it's, it's very, very important. Plus, you have other issues like in swimming, for example, um, if you're in, uh, in butterfly, I would say zone one exercise uh, in, a, in a specialized athlete uh, in, in butterfly just basically doesn't exist <laughs> or right. I couldn't, if, if I do a butterfly, I'd probably be in zone three. Uh, even if I wanted to target zone one, it's just basically impossible. Mm-hmm. So there are many, many issues around that. And, uh, for the listeners, I, I really keep that in mind. The sports differ and a finding in cycling or a finding in running. I don't, Please do not translate that information to the sports you're into um, and don't use it maybe as a as a template or as a, as a justification maybe for a polari- pol- polarized or non-polarized um, um, distribution because uh, the sports differ enormously. 
Mm-hmm. I, I think that is a, a phenomenal point because what a lot, what I see a lot of people do is they take, they take a, a, a research paper and they say, Oh, these elite level athletes are doing the majority polarized training. And then they just say, I need to do polarized training without ever looking at the fact that like, you know, elite level marathoners have been training for 20, 30 years potentially and accumulating hundreds, if not like hundreds of miles a week. And then runners take that and they're like, Oh, you know, I need to do polarized training as well. It's like, well, if you're only running three days a week, then yes, you probably need to do some easy days. You need to do like a hard day here or there, but trying to do polarized training is only going to fit you specifically if you have enough time in order to be able to actually make it polarized. Right. And we haven't even defined, you know, polarized training and pyramidal training and stuff like that yet. We've, we've gotten to the point. Okay. So, so identifying, you know, like the different intensities, that's important. We need to, we first, that's kind of what we need to do. We need to say, okay, we need to do some delineation between lower intensity work, whether that's a three zone model or a five zone model, moderate intensity work, and then high intensity work. That's really what we're trying to do. And the way that I talk about it and why I think researchers use a three zone model is because you can take somebody into the lab, you can do a step test, and you can identify ventilatory thresholds one and two, you can identify lactate thresholds one and two, nearest break point, well, really whatever thresholds you want to identify. Exactly. And then, and then you can get an idea where those delineation points are happening. And you said it perfectly. And this is something that I've been trying to push lately is, is people doing physiology testing repeatedly over time, because those zones are going to change. And they're going to change based on if you're fatigued, they're going to change based on hydration status, they're going to change based on all these different things. So the, the more, the more historical data we get, the better off we're going to be able to estimate that those fluctuations or those differences and changes. And then, and if not, you know, and this is something that, that I'm also working on is, well, what if we could just do a step test every single day and mm-hmm. get your zoning based on that? And you don't have to go to max or something like that. It's just something I'm throwing out there, but it's something I'm working on is like, well, what if, what if we could do that? And then you would know, okay, zone two is probably about here. You know, zone four is about here. So if I'm doing, you know, high intensity stuff, I got to be, got to be up here yeah. and then look at my responses. Zone two got to be close. And you know, I, I think too, like we, we can't throw everything out with the bathwater, right? You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater saying like, uh, it, even if you found your max heart rate and then use those, that's still going to get you pretty close yeah, or relatively close, uh, close yeah. enough. Right. So, yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, and that's why this, this fluctuation and variation, <clears throat> that's why I, I, I still think the three zone model isn't that bad. Mm-mm. Because it combines all the, you know, reliability issues and day-by-day variation and so on. And um, I, I think it's it's okay. I, I know it's not perfect, but I think it's okay. And for the purpose of that, uh, this review article, I, I think it was good because we could a little bit compare the studies having three zones and five zones. So we could a little bit squeeze them together and have more data. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm aware that, uh, depending on the sports, you, you, you really, uh, you do other types of, uh, of testing. But as you said, in the end, 
you're trying to define a, a physiological benchmark or some some reference point uh, which allows you to distinguish zone one, two, and three. And I actually, um, I, I, I would say maybe it's not that important which boundary you, you use. It's more the amount of data you're uh, you're gathering. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Then there are other concepts like critical power, or uh, and also other terminology um, from I uh, Stöger and, and I. We we defined zone one, two, and three in the 2014 publication because in Germany we call zone one as basic endurance exercise. Um, some call it moderate, some call it easy exercise. And I, I didn't want to go down that route. What is basic and what is not so basic, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I said to Tom, uh, let's just call it zone one, two, and three. And we're, we're out of all the issues around that. Um, yeah. So yeah, the, subje- I, I totally, the subjective nature of saying, "Oh, easy versus moderate versus yeah, and, and, yeah." So that that was a little bit what we called it: zone one, two, and three, and that was, I, I think, the easiest uh, uh, the easiest to do at the time. Mm-hmm. And from there on, the minute you have this zone one, two, and three, what then happened, or uh, actually, there was data in the eighties and nineties already on how much time do athletes or really high, high end elite athletes spend in each zone, zone one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. And actually the, the, I would say the most prominent distribution is what Tom and I defined as pyramidal training intensity distribution, mm-hmm. which means that zone one is maybe 70%, maybe even 80% of, of the entire time invested um, related to zone one, zone two, a little bit less could be maybe 10 or 15% and zone three, even more, uh, even lesser. So that's the typical, we didn't have a better term. So we call it pyramidal, um, mm-hmm. and it's been stuck in the, in the literature. So, yeah, so that's, I that's mean, okay. it, it makes sense, right? You know, you, if you had a pyramid, right, yeah. it would go zone one, zone two, zone three. So we, that's it. Ma- yeah. Makes makes sense. I think it's really easy to explain to people visually on Instagram with that, right? Because you just that you just put it as a as it a pyramid. Is. Yeah. And, and I, I have to say that's actually if I look into the literature, um 70, 80% of all the training intensity distributions we identified actually were pyramidal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with a very, very large variation in the amount of, of zone one, two, and three, but nevertheless. Most, most, or I would say almost all of the literature was between 60 and 90% of the entire time spent in zone one. So a mm-hmm. huge, huge, huge amount in zone one. And that seems to be, I would say the, uh, it's not the unique, but it, it's, it's not new information, but uh, that's what endurance athletes do. They invest a lot of time in zone one. Mm-hmm. And then in yeah, 2000, yeah. I was going to say, and the, the reason why we can invest so much time in zone one, or we should be investing so much time in zone one is because it gives us the ability to build volume. And we know that volume is important for things like capillary density, mitochondrial density. And of course, with high intensity interval training, you still get some, some of that response, but it's a way of accumulating a lot of volume without accumulating 
tons of fatigue. So it keeps you consistent over time. And I think that's what people kind of miss out is like, they're like, oh, well, if I'm not exactly at 1.8 millimolar lactate, then I'm not getting all the benefits of zone two training or whatever. It's like, no, 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 no. That's you're missing the point of what zone two, or in this case, zone one training actually is. It's to accumulate a lot of volume, be able to recover from day to day to day. So that when you then go to do your threshold training or your high intensity interval training, you actually are capable of doing that better each time you come back and do it. Absolutely. But but keep in mind, we don't know how long that session should, should be. Right. There is no model. Uh, I could, I couldn't even tell you if, uh, if a runner comes up to me, a, a really good runner and he'd say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm up for a long, long jog, you know, a long run. How long should that be? And mm-hmm. the only thing I can do is, uh, to look at his training history. Yeah. Um, just see what, what's been going on and, uh, and decide from there on, but there's no really good fancy, nothing, you know, shaky appearing. Uh, of course right. you get, you get tired, uh, you get hungry after a while. So maybe hunger could be, a something like, uh, I don't know, maybe a benchmark. It could be, I don't know, feeling cold or cool or I, I don't know. So that, yeah, or, that, or that's like, an issue in actually. Yeah. I was going to say, or changes to, uh, you know, heart rate response, right? You know, a lot of yeah, people. Some drifts, or, yeah. Some cardiac mm-hmm. drifts that, that seems to be this, this terminology of durability, Yep, yep, yep. It's now popping up. So uh, some maybe uh, some drifts, but that could be something. But <clears throat> in our publication, we didn't look at that at all uh, because mm-hmm. um, many of those publications do not uh, give us the true volumes uh, per, per session. So mm. I couldn't even tell you on how long a typical zone one exercise would be. Um well, and then it's going to depend on if the person's been hydrating the entire time, if they're in a hot or a cold room, if they're, you know, eating Carbs, food, carbohydrates, altitude, yeah, what, whatsoever. Absolutely. Yeah. So too many variables that go into it. And I think exactly like what you said, the practical outcome of that is, okay, well, it has to be based on the athletes, you know, previous history, and we will then progressively overload them in, in all aspects, right. Even the, even the low intensity volume. So you slowly building that up over time and you know, it's, yeah, that's a, Oh, that's a, that's such a interesting point is that we're really good at defining intensities, but we're not good at, at defining, you know, say like the, the amount of volume that those intensities should no, be the only, done at really. The only thing you can do is you, you look at training history, uh, you break that down and say, okay, an, an average long training session lasts, I don't know, in cycling five hours, six hours. And then you do, you, you try to hit that and maybe add another two, three, five percent on top of that. And that's what mm-hmm. you call progression. That's the only thing right. uh, we have. Right. So pretty, it's it's pretty arbitrary when we say it like that, right? You know, which it is, it's just like, yeah, nothing, uh, (laughs) tell you anything, uh, any, any other, uh, any other model. So then the interesting part then was in 2000, I believe it was in 2006, uh, Stephen Siley, he, he looked at, um, junior, uh, cross country skiers, really, Mm -hmm. uh, top notch in, in, in Norway. 
And uh, he used the, the three-zone model, and he identified that it seems uh, those uh, cross-country skiers, they do a little, uh, uh, or they have a, a little different pattern, which then was called polarized, meaning you have a lot of time invested in zone one, mm-hmm. not so much in zone two, and, and more in zone three. And that's why the, uh, those two polar zone one and three are, higher than zone two. Um, but I, uh, I looked at that publication again, and the interesting part was the observation period was only one month. So um, hmm. they looked at one, a, a one-month period, I think 300 and something training sessions uh, overall. Um, and in 2000, I don't remember, 20 or 21, I had a a training experiment together with Gunnar Treff. He's uh, he's he, he was uh, responsible for also some scientific background in the rowing federation, and we were thinking of doing a study. Okay, what are the, the physiological differences between pyramidal and, and polarized training protocol? Mm-hmm. And uh, he was really he uh, he organized and invested uh, basically all of his time in that study. And the interesting part was actually we uh, we made it happen. We had two groups, really I would say quite highly trained rowers, engaging in pyramidal um, and in polarized. And the interesting part was <clears throat> the study ended more or less with the first qualification uh, championships, so Mm -hmm. or the first qualification competitions. And the interesting part is, of course, you you can tell the coach, okay, try to engage in a pyramidal type of of training intensity distribution, which within the first five weeks maybe or six weeks in the the 10 or 12-week intervention we had actually went perfectly was really good but going towards the first qualification competition uh the coach automatically engaged in more zone two and zone three exercise and in the end the pyramidal group actually was a polarized group Mm. uh just because of tapering um uh and, and and aligning the intensity to the competition Mm-hmm. What I want to say is that in that Norwegian analysis, it is important to know when the data was um, was gathered. And if you look at a, a, an entire uh, um, season, and if you look at what athletes do, a seasonal analysis, I think, is not a, a very good uh, proximity on, on the amount of intensity because... Uh, it's more in, interesting on when and how do athletes change maybe their training intensity distribution. And that's actually mm-hmm. what we see. If you look at preparation periods in, in each sport, then we have a lot more pyramidal uh, training intensity distributions throughout the sports. And when entering the competition phase, you have more uh, zone two and zone three and I would say, depending on the federation and the sports, you'll even have more zone three 
or if you are in those let's say long distance uh, sports like let's say running you'll probably do more zone two exercise because zone two exercise is very, very close to your competition or to your race pace, more or less. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit of an issue. And I would say the, the, the first observation uh, from Norway was interesting because it, it uh, showed us maybe on how to, to, to quantify intensity <clears throat> but the thing what happened was okay these guys are high-end Norwegian cross-country skiers polarized polarized equals success that's what I do and I think that's mm -hmm. a little bit what happened um, mm -hmm. but uh, we, we were one of the first ones to do a, a perspective or a, a training experiment and the polarized seemed uh, seemed favorable there but I have a hypothesis maybe on that as well. So yeah, I know. saw I saw that paper as well that that said something along the line like the title was something along the lines of polarized training is um you know better at improving performance exactly. variables compared to pyramidal training and what what you've been essentially talking about this entire time that we've been talking about, you know, pyramidal or polarized training is that is this idea that training should go from general in the preparatory phase towards more specific as you get closer to your competition. Absolutely. And I think that's what we really need to highlight. And it really is interesting how people take, you know, like a, like a research article or whatever it is. And, you know, you, you highlight it is like, you know, the, the Siler paper was four week training intervention. And it, I, I don't know when in the season it was, but it could have been, you know, in the base training season, it could have been competition, but you know, whatever they were training for at the time necessitated them to have a polarized training model because that's the type of adaptation the coach was looking for, right? Whereas then when you take a take a step back and then start to look at the paper that you you did, it's, well, yes, a lot of the time in the preparatory phase, it is pyramidal or it, it is polarized, excuse me, but then it shifts depending on where you're at in the season and what sort of physiological outcomes you're trying to really program into those, those athletes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a beautiful explanation. And that's personally why I'm, I'm a little bit in that, <laughs> on that Avenue, uh, saying a, uh, a best practice training intensity distribution does not exist because, mm -hmm. The day-by-day -day variation you have, the daily decision-making you have, changing your intensity because of weather, because of mood, because of eating, whatsoever, you really don't know, um, might lead to a certain training intensity distribution, but trying to replicate that in the next season most probably will not work because these right. daily fluctuations you have, it's, it's, it's nearly impossible. So, uh, and that's another thing, uh, a pre-planned uh, schedule versus an actually uh, executed plan, that's actually a quite interesting uh, research topic on what was the plan and what did I do and, and, mm -hmm. and why is there a difference? And uh, uh, unfortunately, we do not get that information from, from all of those papers. Uh, I'd be interested in was 
training intensity distribution um, reported in those publications, was that a plan, meaning a was it intended to be that way or was it just a result on how the season, on how the life or lifestyle of this athlete occurred? Uh, and that's a little bit the issue I have with the retrospective uh, analysis in, in those, um, those sports. But there's another uh, very important issue is on how to quantify not only the models, you know, the zoning, but uh, how do you quantify? Is it the time in a zone? Do you use heart rate? Uh, do you is it is it based on on, on race pace and so on? And, and those quantification methods are really really different. Meaning, I think I cannot compare, uh, or we shouldn't compare. Uh, quantification methods uh, or only studies with the same quantification methods. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we're just we're measuring like uh, it'd it be you have one study done on heart rate and the other one on VO2 max and you try to find out which one's better. I, I, I think that's not the way to do it. No, I, I agree with that. And I think what, what I try to tell people, cause I'm always trying to say, okay, what is the research saying versus like, how can we translate this into our everyday life? And what I try to tell people is that pick something and repeat it over time. So if you want to use, you know, heart rate, then use heart rate zones going forward. If you want to use power, use power zones going forward and then Absolutely. quantify it from there. Because that's going to, you know, like uh, you've you've probably taught like a methods class like in, in academia where it's like, you know, you have the, the bullseye. And what we're really aiming for is we're aiming for a tight cluster at the bullseye. That's ideal. But then, you know, you could have you could also have something that's a tight cluster, but it's shifted over a little bit. And, you know, it's like, OK, well, if we can't get that, you know, if we can't get the optimal one, the accuracy and the precision, at least we can get the precision. Or, and maybe I'm messing up the, the the definition, but we get that tight clustering because we're doing the same measurements time and time and time again. And you know, if if we do look at you know the your the paper that you guys published, it, it is interesting because when you look at you know time spent in a heart rate zone or uh, time spent in a power zone, those do greatly change the training intensity distributions to the point where it's like you know, one of them goes from a polarized, maybe a polarized model with 90 and 10% to a pyramidal model with like a little bit more distribution. I don't know if it was that, uh, you know, that extreme in terms of the differences, but it definitely changed the way you could potentially interpret the data. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, yeah, keep that in mind. Uh, another quite interesting information in that, publication also was altogether we were able to identify 175 training intensity distributions from all different types of endurance sports running biathlon cross-country skiing cycling swimming and so on mm-hmm. and for me the interesting part uh, was actually i just had to look up the, the real number of the 175 training intensity distributions 49%, so half of those were from single case studies. Mm-hmm. So, and a, and a single case study has uh, 
huge advantages because you can control, you, you have an idea, you know the person and so on. But of course, that's just one solution of one elite athlete um, and yeah. surely is not a template for um, everybody else. And the interesting part of those 49, 67, so two-thirds of those uh, single case studies were from cross-country skiing. So uh, I think there is in that story, there's a, I don't want to say a bias, but yeah, maybe not. Why not? Uh, towards cross-country skiing, mm-hmm. which not necessarily means uh, it's true for running, it's true for others. So the issue single case plus many, many single cases in cross-country skiing does not add up to the, let's say, the family of endurance sports. Mm-hmm. And keeping that in mind, uh, cross-country skiing is a complete different sport when compared to running and to, uh, to cycling, mm-hmm. especially then, also in Norway. Uh, I, I even would say uh, the culture in Norway is, is, a, is a different one. If I compare it, for example, here to Germany, um, I, I would say Norway in itself is a more endurance type country. Uh, I, I don't want to say Germany isn't, but it, it's a different spirit. Mm-hmm. And that might influence intensities and, and you know, pushing each other and, and so on. So this maybe the mentality also plays a role in, uh, in that as well. Yeah, a- absolutely. I, I- I have never been over to to Kenya to meet, you know, like the, the really great Kenyan runners or anything like that, but I've had friends who have done so. And Kenya is a country all about running, right? You know, that's a way of like, like if you're a, if you're a, a that's like, yeah. yeah, it's a lifestyle. And it, it, it totally is different, say in the United States where it's football, baseball, basketball, maybe hockey but it's mostly team sports. And so, so yeah, just that mentality, right. It's like, you know, in, in Kenya, they're like, you know, I've heard of kids who are going to and from school and it's 10 kilometers each way, you know, so they're, they're walking slash running to and from school every single day since they're, you know, five years old. I didn't run my first, like anything, until, you know, I got into like maybe fifth grade or, you know, I was, I, I don't even know what the age of that would be, you know, maybe 10 years old, something along those lines. So, you know, if you start to think about that, it's like, well, these kids, since they were like, you know, maybe five, six years old are already walking slash, you know, doing tons and tons of low level sedentary activity. And then on top of it, it's a way of like, like, that's like, if you're a professional runner, that's like, you know, that's like the big shot over there. Whereas yeah, here it's like absolutely. football, basketball, you know, those sort of things. So yes, I absolutely believe that culture and the mentality behind things, uh, you know, begets better and better athletes within whatever sport it is. And that's why, you know, people in Kenya or from Kenya, people from Ethiopia have been so dominant at like the longer distance and even the shorter distance, uh, uh running and track events for, for so long. Cause that's just, it, it's within their culture. That's like what they take pride in. So yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense and it, you can't quantify that though. Right. You know, it's like, Oh, well, how much do you care about your sport compared no, to but Kenya? Else? I think is a good example. Uh, the data I have from, from Kenyan runners is, uh, and, 
Andrew Jones has published, and they uh, they actually published a, a quite controversial debate in rebuttal article, uh, medicine, science, sports, and exercise on uh, intensity, polarized, non-polarized, and so on. Hmm. Uh, and uh, runners actually, I would say, the high-end runners are not targeting zone three if we're in this zone three model again. They wouldn't go for the zone three uh, or for the high end zone three areas. So they, they will target rather zone two or maybe zone two plus uh, um, yeah. as, as a high intensity. But for them, that's already a very, very high intensity. So for runners, actually zone two is, is an important um, intensity zone because what it does is it it stimulates a little bit, you know, or helps your pacing. You mm-hmm. know, if you exercise in that area that's close or just maybe beneath your uh, your race pace, and this, this pacing, knowing can I can I just do another five percent more or three percent more? Um, that's psychology involved in that is uh, is quite important. Now, if you're a mountain biker just going uphill, you know, and you just have a single trail and the first one on the single trail is more or less the winner, you know, you, you'll be in zone four in a zone three model. <laughs> you'll be mm-hmm. uh, above, <laughs> you'll really be uh, hitting it hard. So those sports are, are different. They are mm-hmm. different. And I think we should, uh, we, uh, this term endurance, uh, we have so much data on endurance sports. I think we should name the sports we're analyzing. It shouldn't be a, a new training method in the endurance sport. It should be a training method in the sports you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, especially yeah, and then, and then from bike. that, you have to break it down, right? Is it is is it mountain biking or is it road biking, you Absolutely. know, road cycling, right? Because those are totally different sports. And I've been talking to people like, oh, I'm training for, you know, mountain biking or cross-country riding. And my power profile, like they then they sent me their power, pro- power profile. And it was like bouncing up and down the entire time from okay. like 600 watts to 100 watts. And it was like just going the entire, I was like, oh my gosh, like, I would die first of all, like if I, if I had to try to emulate that, but it, it just, because then when you're on the road, you can have a pretty po- like a pretty steady power profile, right? Cause it's not this up and down bursts of energy, bursts of speed. It's the same thing with, with, uh, ultra running versus road marathoning, totally different. And the requirements for that, right. Are, are very, very different. And I, I like that take and, I think I think what we all have to remind ourselves of is that you know the single best way to you know get better at a sport is to identify the the challenges within that sport and then train to get specifically better at those and having a coach allows you to then take a both a subjective and objective look at the data that you're getting and not be blinded by say your ego. Cause I know for sure I've or tried belief, to train myself or belief yeah. or yeah. Cause I've trained myself a lot and I've wound up injured a lot because I always believe that I can do more, you know, than really what my physiology or what my, you know, true capabilities are. So absolutely. yeah, it, yeah, that's, that's super interesting. So um, with, with a little bit of time we have left, I would like to, 
I want to touch on the uh, the differences that you guys found within the the repeat VO two max um, re, <laughs> uh, study, but we we can we we don't have to do that right now. That's another really interesting study that I'm going to read and I'm going to uh, publish on my Instagram. So uh, we might need to bring you back to to talk about that because that is <laughs> also crazy. But and you know from from your opinion, you're right. You've used or you talked about, you know, using wearables in terms of, of training yeah. and other things like that for, for individuals, you know, first of all, how would you recommend going about using wearables to inform your training? And then do you have any, any ones that you're like, well, you know, these ones are pretty good. These ones are pretty noisy, but if you have, you know, like the correct expertise, it's good to use, like, you know, where, how do they kind of like stack up for you? Yeah. Um, actually, I, that, that's a question I get uh, quite often, quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe to start off, if you engage in a certain type of exercise, I think you should think of what is your driving framework, what is your driving model. It could be um, heart rate based, uh, meaning I have a certain watt or a certain pace. And I just want to see what my heart rate says at a certain pace. And over time, what should happen at the same power output, your heart rate should go down just because you become more economic. Mm -hmm. So this is what we've been calling internal versus external, um, let's say, comparison over time. So that's a certain type of model. If that's your driving idea behind training adaptation and changes over time, then, of course, you can decide which type of wearables might be interesting in providing me an information which is helpful for that framework. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, internal versus external, I could think probably of five or ten different internal variables I could I could measure. I could use blood lactate, heart rate, oxygen uptake, NIRS, as you said. It could be subjective uh, data, um, uh, blood glucose, whatsoever. So your training model, the model you're looking for, I think that's the first question you need to solve. If you're, if you're aware of that model, then currently I would say there's a lot of technology out. Uh, unfortunately, usually not everything in, in, a, in a smartwatch. So you might need two or three devices in order to mm-hmm. collect the information you need. So I'm totally okay if somebody says I'm, I'm, I'm monitoring or I'm navigating through my, my, my training using just heart rate or using near-infrared or... Um, I, I'm totally fine with that. The thing the coach or the athletes or ideally both need to define is what is a successful and what is a non-successful um, framework. And I think that's the thing uh, really a good coach needs to be aware of uh, def- saying, okay, with this athlete, my usual model I've been applying isn't really good. Isn't a, a a helpful model. So let's change the way of thinking. And maybe by doing so, let's change the information I need. Meaning it could be the usual devices you've been using, 
might not ne necessarily be the same ones in a in a different athlete. And that's a little mm -hmm. bit a, a tricky thing. For me, I've been um, I've been creating this twenty four hour, or I'm trying to stimulate this twenty four hour thinking because twenty four hours is actually a quite interesting. Uh, Thinking, if you look at elite athletes overall, let's say triathletes, cyclists, cross-country skiers, they invest in thousand uh, hours per year and, and even more, uh, adding up on average. That's a daily load of about four hours. That's that's the time those athletes invest, having you know some time off, some maybe injuries or illness and so on. So, but on average, four hours, meaning. In a 24-hour period, you only invest four hours into training. And the other 20 hours, you you can behave, um, let's say, uh, quite stupidly, uh, but you also can behave, I would say, strategically correct, uh, meaning mm -hmm. uh, you, you look at sleep, nutrition, free time activity, with whom you interact and so on. And that actually was my, my starting point of the wearable technology. What I wanted to know is how much time, maybe sleep, uh, still sleep with accelerometers is a little bit like, you know, measuring room temperature with your body scale. It's, it's, it's not the right, <laughs> it's not the right device, you know, for right. sleep sleep quality but still there's some technology coming out maybe based more on heart rate variability and, and some other technologies coming out they're surely not perfect but still they provide a certain type of information mm -hmm. but we need to be aware what is the information and how reliable is the information and that was a little bit my start off um, and interestingly athletes have adapted this this nerdy, uh, which device is best for ages. We've had perfect devices. Uh, we never called them wearables, but we had a good chest belt, you know, uh, for mm -hmm. heart rate monitoring. Um, why change that? It just doesn't make uh, to just use it. And we've also had other good devices um, where we could check the model and then identifies the model good or bad. Does it work or not? Is it successful, not successful? And I, I've been interested in, can I identify technology giving me some information on, I call them the modulators, uh, modulating uh, physiology, because in all of the studies so far, we always have responders or potential responders and non-responders. Mm -hmm. But I would say, within a typical 20 or 30 person training experiment, there's so many differences in sleep time, in free time activity, um, free time actually exercise intensity, um, mm -hmm. in how uh, people engage, in which circumstances they are. And we know psychology modulates your biochemistry. Um, sleep mm -hmm. modulates your biochemistry. So why not harvest that information and, and just have a little bit more information on properly interpreting a training experiment? 
I, if you I, want, I, now that was the long story. The short yeah. story is what <laughs> I would recommend a coach is identifying the model. Mm-hmm. The next step is identifying the key elements you would need to change within that model. It could be economy. It could be, I don't know, some concentric forces could, whatsoever. You identify some gaps uh, within your, your, your athlete and try to solve those uh, maybe three, two to three key elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, reevaluate and go from there on. So those key elements for me are, I think the, the aspects to go and, you can use uh, models more related to biochemistry, more to biomechanics, more to psychology, more to neuromuscular modeling, whatsoever. I, I think there are many, many avenues, but the important part is knowing when is a model successful or not and identifying the key components uh, necessary. And I, I think from there on, you'll find the technology. Uh, right. It, it's. I don't want to say it's out because not all devices are reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, the technology is out. You just need to to use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. That's that's great. And I, I think too, you touched on uh, that most recently, or the the paper published in two thousand twenty two about we need to look at changes to whatever outcome variables mm-hmm. that we're measuring, and we need to know what the biological and the measurement variability Absolutely. is. Absolutely. So, so you have to make sure that what you're increasing, say, say your, your uh, thing is VO two max. So you've identified this athlete's VO two max is too low. You need to know when you go and do this VO two max test again, is it outside of that biological and that measurement error? Cause if it's within it, then you're, you know, then statistically speaking, you're prop. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a non-significant increase in VO two max. So then you need to switch something up, but if it's outside of that, then, you know, that's a, that's a really good indication that you've, um, you know, successfully, you know, you've had a success in, in that. So, um, yeah, this is, this has been a really awesome talk, Dr. Spurlick. I really appreciate you coming on and I'll, 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 I won't take any more of your time, but where can people find you on places like social media and stuff like that? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm on Instagram on and on Twitter. Uh, so if you look up Billy Spurlick, you'll find me on Instagram and on Twitter. And uh, in 2010, now uh, actually, yeah, 13 years ago, I, I launched a blog called www.sportsandscience.de. Uh, you'll find some information. It's it's a little bit split in German and English, uh, depending on on the content. Uh, there's, uh, some podcast, um, episodes as well. I'm, I'm starting with podcasts as well, or I've, I've been in that area, but, um, uh, I'm not a frequent podcaster in that sense, but mm-hmm. every time I have something interesting, I, I use it. So yeah, uh, browse along and, and, uh, yeah, maybe you'll like the content. Yeah. And I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to dig into that other paper we talked about with the repeatability of stuff and share it on my social media. Definitely. Um, I will tag. Yeah, no, I, I, I have always wanted to do a study like that. So I'm glad somebody else did. Um, and I've, I've been fortunate enough to essentially have uh, mobile metabolic devices Ah, and stuff. So I can, Mm -hmm. I can repeat those tests over time. So I'm doing one a month now. Um, but yeah, I will, I will, put all of uh 
Dr. Spurlick's information in the show notes below. As always, you guys can find me at Critical02 on Instagram. If you're on YouTube, comment down below with any questions about training, intensity distributions, wearables, anything like that we talked about in the show. And we'll catch you guys in the next one.